Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 54 of the podcast. And I have a very, very short intro for you today, folks, before we get into today's interview, uh, which is going to be an interview with my mentor, Dr. Amy Spagnolo. I'm really, really, really excited to bring you uh, today's topic, which is going to be all about mentorship. And the interview is is long. It's quite long for uh, a typical college student success podcast. So I'm going to skip all of the intro stuff. I just want to say uh, I did. There was a little bit of audio issues in that. I, I was trying to record with my new microphone, and I ended up not selecting it, and it recorded with my computer mic, which isn't so bad. Uh, the quality is pretty decent, except for the fact that I, when I thought I was muting myself to cough, <laughs> um, those obviously did not get muted out. So uh, I apologize. I'm still learning this new microphone, but uh, I'm happy with the results when I can get it to work. So bear with me, guys. Apologize for that. Um, but the audio overall, I think, does sound pretty good. Just uh, annoyed at myself for that oversight. So without any further ado, let us get into the interview now. Take it away, Derek and Amy. Okay, I am here with Amy Spagnolo, who is a faculty member in the department that I work in. Uh, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Derek. I, uh, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, we're going to be talking about mentorship and goal achievement strategies today. Um, you are somebody that I am, uh, I really, um, value our relationship and it's kind of evolved over the years and I'm excited to kind of talk about it. Um, I would like to kind of start off though, maybe just kind of giving the audience a glimpse of kind of how you got to where you're at now. I know you started in the mental health field and kind of made the leap eventually to, uh, working in academia and I did as well. It's kind of interesting, uh, to hear your story. So, uh. Take it away. <laughs> sure. Well, so thank, thanks so much for inviting me. I was excited to hear that uh, the topic today was was mentorship and that we have had quite an evolution uh, together uh, in, in our relationship from uh, student to faculty, uh, then to mentorship and then to, to colleagues. So that was cool. Uh, also, the, the goal setting piece for me is something that kind of drives my work and also uh, just drives me as an individual. So I was excited to start to think through um, how does goal setting apply to me, um, and it does in a lot of ways. But I guess right. we'll wait, wait for that till later. Okay. Um, so I think, like many other people, um, I came upon mental health and psychiatric rehab specific, specifically um, in a pretty circuitous way. I think it's best to say that. Uh, there was like this confluence of factors that um, made me pursue psychology as a major way back in my undergrad. Um, but I didn't recognize that all of those factors existed or were at play in my decision making until I was, um, I guess, almost a junior attending Kane University back in the 90s. Um, so this is going way back, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bring them back. <laughs> when I, when I was in grade school, um, I had my first experience with actually thinking I knew what I wanted to do. Um, so I guess I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years old. And my brother had recently been in a pretty significant accident that had injured his hand and arm really badly. And he had to consider a new occupation. And at the time, he was an artist, and the accident made holding a brush or a pencil nearly impossible because of, you know, the fine motor skills that it required to pinch your fingers and to, to hold an object and to, to draw or paint. And so he started seeing an occupational therapist, and because I was much younger, he unfortunately had to take me to his OT appointments, which I'm sure he was just thrilled about, but... Um, I was really interested in, in both what the OT was doing with him physically, and I also got a sense that um, she really cared about my brother and, and the work that she was doing. So I liked the environment. I liked her. I liked the work that was going on as I observed. And it always, to me, looked like a real partnership between my brother and her, even though it was a clinical setting. And I say clinical with air quotes because um, it, it felt warm. 
um, and not like some of the other hospital-based settings that um, I may have been exposed to as, as a young person. So I originally started at Kane as an OT major. And when I needed to start doing site visits, I returned to the same OT clinic that my brother was being treated at years before and got to shadow the actual OT that he had worked with at the time. And uh, so that was amazing. Yeah. Um, I still loved the experience of being in that setting and thought that OT was definitely going to be the occupation for me and, uh, until my next set of site observations, which was at a school for children with physical disabilities in Jersey City. So I needed to spend three weeks in that setting. And after one day, I was emotionally crushed. I, I couldn't have anticipated my emotional reactions to seeing and working with these little children who had such major illnesses and physical complications. I was, I was a wreck. Um, I was struggling. Um, every day I'd come back from the site and just really be emotionally drained and upset. And I was talking to my mom about it every single night and my dad sometimes too. I just, I didn't want to go back, but every single day she encouraged me to stick it out. And I truly learned a tremendous amount about myself and the challenges of providing OT, not only to kids um, who were physically impaired, but also in many cases, they were really impoverished and living in very unsuitable home environments. So school for them was a safe haven um, and the work that the OTs were doing with them was really critical to their to their physical um, needs, but also I think just spiritually and and emotionally, they they were the only people in some cases um, that these little kids had, and it was it was really heartbreaking. Wow. Um, but I did realize that something other some other interesting thing, and that was so I was really affected by the psychological distress that disability puts on the kids and the family. And I think that might be one of the more ironic parts of the experience because I was psychologically affected. The children, the families, the faculty of the school were all affected. And every night I was turning to my mom for support and she was a person with a psychiatric illness. And, you know, my mom had struggled with uh, some significant generalized anxiety disorder and, and panic disorder since she was a really young woman. And she was very fortunate in that she had a really strong support system and a doctor who understood her needs and kept her stabilized in the community. Um, you know, she had three kids to look after that made her one of like the most focused and persistent people I know. Cause she, she couldn't be sick for very long. Yeah. Um, and my dad was incredibly supportive and understood, you know, that her challenges stemmed from trauma as a child and anxiety. And he just, he never lost patience. And, you know, she's 75 years old and a fantastically productive and successful woman. So it was after that internship at the school that I realized I want to pursue a career in psychology. I need to be there uh, in a way that supports people's emotional health. And that is what really drew me to psychology. Mm -hmm. um, I knew, I, I already knew, and, and I believed that people could live in recovery and they could manage their symptoms because I saw it every day with my mom. And so I transferred to the psychology department at the end of that semester at Kane. And then I very quickly, um, applied to the dual degree in psych and psych rehab after learning more about it from an advisor. Um, and I was actually among the second, yeah, the second graduating class of that dual degree, um, between Kane and university of medicine and dentistry at the time. Yeah. So circuitous for sure. But, um, I think just a really strong match for my, my personal values and my early experiences. Yeah. I think that I hear that a lot. I'm on the OTA, um, selection committee and our, you know, our department has an occupational therapy assistant program. Mm -hmm. And I hear that when I interview them, that's the story I hear in the ones that eventually seem to get picked is that they knew from a young age and it doesn't always end up being the, the exact profession, but they knew they wanted to help people in some way. And it kind of sounds like your story as well is like, yeah. And then you, you gravitated towards OT cause that was your early exposure. But yep. then, you know, again, the circuitous route takes you, you know, and figures it lands you in the, the space where you're like, oh, it was right in front of me all along, you know, when I was, you know, think when you talk about your mother. Yeah. Um, 
That's awesome. Okay, so now you are working in the mental health field. Yep. And how does the transition then happen? Oh, so that was cool. You know, I, I got involved in the department. I was super young. I think I was like 19 years old. Um, department of Psych Rehab, that is. And uh, I did my first internship in a supported employment program in Hudson County. And so I was working, uh, you know, really embedded within their team, even as an intern. And then uh, very shortly um, before graduation from the bachelor's program, I was hired by that agency, you know, contingent upon me finishing, but um, hired as a full-time staff person doing uh, supported employment services. And so that was such an amazing learning experience, being that young and, and having the autonomy to work in a community-based program where, you know, you're making decisions on the fly. You're not always with a team member. Your supervisor, like, gets the secondhand account of what you've been doing with yourself all day, you know? Yeah. So I learned such amazing structure um, and how to structure time and, you know, how to be responsible and um, working with people who are looking to get back into work or for the first time get employment. It was just, it was such a serious and grown up job. Um, I, and, and I think I was making $18,000, $18,000 a year, but it felt like, oh my gosh, this is, this is my first real serious job. And I took it, you know, very seriously. And I, I loved it. Um, around that time, I also started the master's degree program in psych rehab. And I was learning these things that every single day matched what I was doing at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it almost seemed like there was never a time where we had an assignment or a question in my grad, my grad program that I would be like, Oh, I don't really have a good example of that. Um, it was like the examples were in front of my face, you know, nine hours a day. And that felt very, very rewarding. Um, being able to implement everything I was learning in graduate school right into my job. And so that felt very good. Um, when I finished the master's degree program, I started looking for other employment because um, I felt like I, I had gotten a good handle on supported employment. I enjoyed it, but now I had the master's degree and I thought I, I, I need to capitalize kind of on my momentum right now, because if I don't start seeking employment somewhere else, I'm going to get really comfy here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked everyone I was working with. They were an amazing team. Um, and so I, I took the, the, the plunge and I applied to Bridgeway, which, um, anybody who's familiar with mental health services in New Jersey knows that organization. And I sought employment there because they were doing a lot of the evidence-based practices that I had been learning about and that, um, I, I thought were really valuable. And so they had a position for a master's level clinician in the clerical unit of a partial care program. And I had some reservations about working in a setting um, that's described as partial care just because I was really invested in the idea that all services should be provided in, in natural environments in the community. But after I learned more about the work they were doing and kind of their philosophy of recovery and getting people in and out quickly, um, establishing their connections in the community and really working their support networks, I felt okay about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I started working there and, um, at the same time I started pursuing doctoral programs. So I, I actually never stopped school since I was five, which a lot of people find, you know, wild, but for me, it just made a lot of sense. Like I am the kind of person that really requires consistent engagement to stay motivated. So if I had a break, I felt really worried that I wouldn't be able to get back in to that, you know, swing of things. So you went from high school directly into college, yes. spent your four or four years and went directly into the master's program, went directly yes. into the PhD. Okay. Wow. Yes. That is, um, quite remarkable and <laughs> not the norm, you know, and I'm, as I'm sure, you know, you know, I've been interviewing some college students on the podcast and, you know, I kind of asked them how that went. And it's almost always, you know, interruptions or they yeah. start late or go for a little while and stop. And, and I, I, I talk about how this term, like the non-traditional student, you know, which is kind of that category really yeah. is a misnomer because, uh, you're more than non that your path is now more the non-traditional student of going, you know, straight through and, and not stopping. But, you know, everybody has their own needs. So it's good to kind of hear the other side uh, and, and talk to somebody that's experienced that. Um, okay, let's finish that out. So now you're in the PhD program and still yeah. working at Bridgeway? 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. And there was an opportunity that came along because a faculty person in the department was uh, retiring. And so they were looking to fill this part-time instructor. And if you, you know, anybody familiar with academia knows instructor is like one little step up from an adjunct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dr. Carlos Pratt, who was one of my faculty members then said, you know, there's this position available. And um, I think that you might be really interested in it. And it's a, it's a great way to get your foot in the door if you're interested in, you know, research and um, potentially a career um, as, you know, an academician. And I thought, wow, that sounds amazing. And I have this really strong connection to the department. Um, and part-time is completely manageable. I could keep my job at, at Bridgeway and I could start getting my doctoral studies underway. Um, and, you know, he made it really clear, like, we would not consider you for the instructor position even unless you had some intention of, of getting your Ph.D., and I was all in. I thought, yeah, um, I want my PhD. I think this is a great kind of entree to the occupation of being a faculty member at a university. And I really think I can learn as I go along. And so everything literally came together um, that in that one instance where I applied for the instructor position. Uh, within, I think, that same month, I applied to the doctoral program. Um, I started courses for myself as a grad uh, doctoral student. And then I started teaching courses uh, in the undergrad program. Um, yeah. And then that just kind of, you know, became such a priority for me and, and such a place of, of passion and interest that I left Bridgeway to um, take a full-time faculty position here. Yeah. And it illustrates so many, that whole story illustrates so many of the things we talk about and on the podcast. So one thing I wanted to highlight is, is you had, you had an internship that you yeah. got through the school that yeah. led to uh, an employment opportunity. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's the way internships should work, right? You know, for the people that are successful in it and that, that respond to the environment saying like, yeah, this is what I envisioned it would be, or this is what I do want to continue to do. As well as to weed out, you know, people that, and I think I don't even want to say weed out. Maybe just like give people the experience so that they can know. No, nah, this really isn't for me. Um, I talked about how some people in my in the class I teach have internships and they turn into full time employment to uh, you know seek those out. And then the other thing you mentioned too is like just starting with a part time role or teaching one class to get yeah. your foot in the door ended up being that way. You got your foot in the door and, and now you're in there. <laughs> and I, I took the same sort of similar route where I was like, wow, I'll take that opportunity, you know, and, and yeah. figure the rest out later. And it, and it worked out. Yeah. Totally. And I think that both of those experiences that you described of mine or, or summarized from what I told you, as well as your own, which I, I know a bit about, um, are really good examples of sampling that a lot of people are not afforded the opportunity to do. So even back in the OT experiences, you know, those three or four week um, exposures were certainly enough to let me know what I could and could not handle mm-hmm. and what I was and was not interested in, you know, and then the paid internship in mental health was clearly, you know, sealed the deal. I'm like, this is where I belong. Um, but I, I feel like people who don't have that exposure are really at a disadvantage um, once they start pursuing occupations, because it's just how will you ever know until you're in the environment? Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's just simple trial and error. And I, I talk about it a lot. Of, just last week's episode spent a good amount of time talking about it, is like this idea that that's how you, you figure things out. And, and a lot of students, I think, feel um, scared to, to reach out and try things knowing that they might act, might not actually, you know, succeed. <clears throat> and uh, yes. It's yeah. not such a bad thing to fail at, you know, something like that, you know, and, and it yeah. be a great learning experience. So, um, all right, that sort of talk kind of segues well um, into my version. I'm going to talk a little bit about how I came to, to meet you and, and how our uh, relationship evolved. Um, so I was uh, working in the field in a non-psych rehab program. I was in a mental health program. Uh, it was my first job, you know, full time in the field, and I learned what I thought mental health treatment for community in the community was. And yeah, uh, it was not psych rehab. I'm not going to get into why, but I went to. I ended up taking a job at 
uh, an agency that did do psychiatric rehabilitation, and it was much smaller than the agency I'd come from, much more family-oriented. And I was like, well, you know, I kind of like this. This is like a different spin. You know, people, I actually saw a counselor give somebody a hug that was getting yeah. services, and I was like, oh, wow, like, I can't <laughs> believe it, you know? And um, so it was that kind of agency, a little more warm and fuzzy. And I remember, I remember the training I met you. Yeah, I was a, an introduction to psychiatric rehabilitation, and I had been with the agency probably less than six months. So this would have been like 2003, 2004. I had been, I had graduated with my bachelor's in 2000, so I had been out of school for th two, three years, and you know, working in the field, kind of liking it, but not really knowing if I was going to stick with it. And I went to that training. And everything you talked about that day was like, hmm, that makes sense. Yeah, that's how I feel. And I remember walking out thinking like, wow, like I, that really makes sense to me. And it was different than I had been, been trained in, in this previous job. And I believe we talked after the training. And you talked about the, uh, the master's program, you know, and I, I really hadn't been thinking about school uh, up mm -hmm. until then. And it, it took me another you know, year, year and a half to even apply because I started in 2005. Um, but that was the first, that was the first day that I was like, oh, hmm, I might be interested in this. And it, it led to kind of that exploration thing where, uh, you know, I took the moment, you know, after that training and, and you were there to say, hey, you know, here's my card, you know, if you have any questions. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just kind of like that in the beginning, you know, I would, if I had a question, like when I was applying to the program, you know, it was, you were easy to reach out to. And then mm -hmm. really when I got in the program is when we became, you know, I think we started becoming, you became more of a mentor to me in kind of, you know, um, deciding there's a few different tracks within the ma our master's program, like which one would be the best fit because, um, that was hard for me to figure out, you know, whether I liked more like research and, and teaching or, more counseling and rehabilitation aspect. And so those are, I think, the, the, some of the early conversations that we had. Um, and then I graduated from the program, and that was 2008, went to work at Bridgeway, <laughs> remarkably yeah, yeah. enough. Um, <laughs> it was funny to see your, your signature on documentation from you know, a decade <laughs> earlier. Um, and was working at Bridgeway when, I believe, you reached out to me, and again, I remember the day, uh, and you were like, oh, I have this uh, you know, opportunity, I need a master's level trained, blah, 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 for this grant I'm working on. And I was like, oh, that's great. And it actually didn't work out for that position, but that was like kind of me getting involved, like kind of letting them know like, oh, I want to do some employment, you know, I'd like to work for you guys someday. And eventually it was that, it was somebody, uh, they needed an adjunct at the last minute to, uh, help co-facilitate a class and somebody said my name and there it was and, and within that month I was actually hired on on a different project um, for, for research and uh, you know kind of similarly it was like right away after I got that foot in the door I was um, I was hired but along the way like I really tried to not let the department forget about me I would I would yeah. go on lecture I would lecture to, to classes go back and talk about residential services or or partial care and and those I think were at your suggestion too because you knew what I was interested in you know we had had those sort of deeper conversations to say like I would like to be where you're at one day you know mm -hmm. and, and how do I do that and those those were the suggestions is like you know take the opportunities that are given to you even if it's just coming in you know after you've worked for eight or nine hours to, to our school and talking for two more yeah it's gonna suck but we'll give you a yeah. little bit of money and it was like more about the exposure because the instructors that were in those classes didn't just leave, you know, they sat and, and listened to me present too. And that's how I kind of, I guess, got my, got some exposure to some of the instructors that I didn't actually have as, as teachers myself in the program. And then, so you were my sort of entry into psych rehab as, as a practice and as a field of interest. And then you were my entry into the, um, into the department, kind of my transition from community mental health to academia. And now I'd say we're, we're really, you know, you're still a mentor to me. It's for much different types of things related to, you know, the inner workings of a, um, 
college department mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's a lot for for new faculty to learn and and it's it's been interesting because it was definitely it was definitely a different way that I looked at you then than I look at you now, but it was always sort of in that mentorship slash friend slash yeah. colleague uh, way. So how how much does that fit with, with how you saw it? Well, you know, you have details uh, that are clearer because they were you were experiencing them, you know, so yeah. they were more impactful to you than I probably have ever considered. And I'm happy, you know, that you, you, you have these positive remembrances and and that's so cool because, you know, some of the early stuff was I needed, I needed things to get done and you seemed like the best person to do them. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't me actively thinking of, um, this can lead to some really wonderful and productive mentorship relationship. It was like, I, I have needs at, at my position and I need competent people. And so I learned really early on, um, that when you see talent, you, you know, you need to cultivate it. And I think that I was fortunate to have been cultivated. And so that's kind of how I viewed you initially. Um, so maybe our relationship is unique or maybe it isn't. And I just haven't seen it happen exactly this way before. But I, I, I think as you described, you know, the beginnings of it were when you, when you became a student, because that's really when you make a commitment to, to graduate school and a commitment to your faculty and to your classmates and to your, your school, um, that you're going to be what our degree seeks to make you, right? So you're saying, I'm handing myself over to your, um, you know, your approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that that signifies to people, okay, this person is committed and serious. Um, and before that, you know, you had mentioned you had toyed with the idea after being exposed to training. And so I knew that you were invested in, in at least some way. Um, but I had no idea, you know, where you were going to take that. And so for me, it was like, oh, this is, this makes good sense when you, you know, when you applied and when you became part of the department, um, as a student, I thought this is a really, a really good match match for him. Um, and I just wanted to, as a side note, say, you know, some of the stuff I've read on, um, people's choices for graduate education estimate it's about four to six years of decision-making before a person enrolls. Yeah, I was right there. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you may get this inkling, oh, this might be something I want to pursue as graduate education, but for most people, it's around four years before they can actually say they've, they've now, um, you know, enrolled and become, become a matriculated student. So you were, you were right on that, on that cusp. Um, so, as I said, you know, you were a student in the program and, you know, it, you emerged really quickly as somebody who understood the core values of, of recovery and psych rehab principles that people, you know, should be given every opportunity to succeed and reach meaningful goals that were important to them. You were able to critically uh, look at your different work environments and pull out like what was psych rehab and what wasn't psych rehab. And that's, that's a more advanced, I think, um, set of skills. To, to critically evaluate something to see if it's, you know, faithful um, to what we say are, are the principles. And you were already working in, and I think the housing program at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had this real world experience that I found, uh, even for a very young person, you were able to relate to people who were receiving services that were sometimes, you know, twice your age. And so when you began supervising interns for us is where I really got to see your supervision in action and, and, felt confident that you were providing a really good hands-on experience for the interns just from visiting you and seeing how you interacted with, with the interns. And so when the option of having a, a teaching assistant, a TA, came up for me, you were just a natural choice. And I thought, um, this will be a good experience for you. It's something that I critically need. If you remember, I was um, teaching a full load in the summer, and I was a full load. I was enormously <laughs> pregnant. Yep. Remember. <laughs> like very, very pregnant. Um, and um, I think that experience, having you direct the class and assist with grading and develop relationships with students, it really shifted our dynamic tremendously because at that point I was able and really willing um, to view you as my colleague versus my student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like how you brought up and you brought it up right in the beginning and then kind of circled back on it at the end. Like 
you probably didn't have this like grand vision when you met me, like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to mentor him and it's going to go great. And you needed something, you know? Yeah. And if, if people are interested in like gaining mentorship opportunities and have identified somebody that they, you know, they think might be a good person, like some of it is exposure, right? Like you need to know who yeah. the person is, but a lot of it is like figure out a way that you can give that person something valuable, you know, oh whether gosh, it be yeah. like, you know, come in and, and do a presentation for me for my class or yeah, hey, I'm I'm pregnant and need some help yeah. in the classroom. Like I yeah. don't remember if you approached me or I approached you about that, but it was, I, I left that one out, but that was a yeah, that one was kind of something that kind of sealed the deal for us in um and it was really like I could see now the way you describe it coming primarily from a need and then yeah. knowing like, oh, I need something. He would be a good person for him for that because I know him from this. Distance. Yeah. And so you're bringing up like really important things. I think that uh, I just want to take a moment to reflect on. And, sure. and the first is that as a protege, I think you have to be willing to take, but also to give. And some people think being a protege means you get molded and sculpted and afforded opportunities. And, you know, you're just like this recipient but it's, that is not the case. It has not ever been for me. Um, and it certainly hasn't been between you and I. Um, the other thing is I think the informal conversations that we had always seemed like mentorship to me and that I had this feeling of gratitude that someone else was seeking out my feedback, but then actually using it because as a teacher or a faculty person, you give a ton of feedback, a ton. And you don't always see it materialize and be used uh, in a way that the person's performance or their abilities are then strengthened because of what you've done. But in a mentorship-protege relationship that's working well, you see the differences in the person because of the interactions you've had together. And I think that's very cool. Yeah. Um, and so thinking back on the evolution of our relationship – it's clear to me now that you were actually my first protege and I've applied a lot of the pieces of our relationship and the things that we did together to the others that I have since mentored because it was the first type of mentorship protege situation I had been in where I was the mentor. Mm -hmm. Um, and for a lot of reasons, it was a very successful one. So I think that I, I was able to draw from, well, what did Derek need during this phase of his development. And even though he was meeting a need that I had, he was being changed for the better by having been exposed to it. So how do I do that with someone else who has a different need? Um, so it's just, it's a really, it's a, it's a fluid process and it's one that has evolved over, I mean, how many years, Derek? 15? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. 15. In 2003. So yeah. Yeah. 13. So, um, all right, so that brings up a good a good entry into my next question is to kind of think about what you what it was like when you were a protege, you know, yeah. and talk about um, what you've gotten out of your mentors. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think I may have mentioned this uh, in another part of our conversation, but I have been really incredibly fortunate in this area, um, and I don't say that like I haven't done anything to make it happen. But I've also had really generous and very smart people uh, throughout my my education and employment. So my actual mentor is is Carlos Pratt, and similar to you and I, that evolved over a period of more than twenty years. Um, he was one of my first instructors, and uh, then he became my dissertation advisor for my master's degree, and later. Um, I'm sorry, my thesis mm -hmm. advisor for the master's degree, and then my my dissertation chair uh, for the PhD program. So academically, he's legit. He's seen me progress from a 19 year old undergrad to a 30 something uh, doctoral candidate. Wow. Um, and the other piece of it was that he was also the one who was advocating for me to be hired first as part as as a, a part time faculty member, and then as a full time uh, faculty member in the department. He you know, was the one who exposed me to the positions and kind of prepared me for what I should be doing, et cetera. Um, after I became full-time in the department, I then inherited the master's degree program director position from him. And he spent uh, nearly a year transitioning out of that role and getting me prepared, which is really unheard of. Yeah. Um, 
I was doing the work next to him of the program director position for several months before it was all on my shoulders. And then literally for years after he supported me in that role because things came up and, you know, I needed him. Um, generally I, I think he's just always gone to bat for me. And that's hugely important to a protege is that you feel like your mentor when, when push comes to shove is really going to do what it takes to support you and, and your success. And it's funny because when he interviewed me for the PhD program and, um, made it really clear that being the only person in my family to go to college, let alone earn a PhD was, was a barrier to my success. Um, I was initially really pissed off mm-hmm. at him. Yeah. I could see him saying that. And, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you're sitting across from me and you've known me for, I don't know, 15 years. You've seen my work. Um, I volunteered my time on research projects in this department just because I wanted the exposure. Like you get me why are you doing this to me? You know, why are you like making me second guess myself and pointing out a shortcoming and holding me accountable for something I have no control over, which is my family is, is not educated. And afterwards, you know, I talked to him about it. This is years after I'm like, I was really angry at you. He's like, that was the point. You know, I, I wanted you to prove yourself. I wanted you to say, uh, yeah, I know that already, but this is what I plan to do. He's like, and you did. So why are you still mad? <laughs> you know, I'm like, So, um, that's what he's always done though. He's always given me the nudge always. He's always nudged me. Um, sometimes been incredibly critical, more critical than anyone else who's ever judged my work. Um, but then he's also built me back up and and helped to support me get better. Um, that seems to me like kind of what differentiates a a mentor from just a friend, right? Because Ah. friends are, you know, there to to go to bat for you and support for you or else why the hell would they be your friend? Um, but it's that, that constant, like you you don't always like push your friends to do better, right? You know, sometimes you just want to hang out and, you know, go to a bar or whatever, you know, um, it's not always about personal development. Right. And so when you have somebody in that role where it's like, no, I'm going to support you. But I'm also going to kind of demand more or expect more out of you and, and, and push you a little bit than, you know, somebody else might that kind of does, I think, separate a mentor from just a, a, a good, you know, a good support in somebody's life. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so he's, he, he also did other really cool things for me. Um, he made lots of suggestions throughout um, my early career and even before I was hired as full-time faculty. So one of the things he he suggested was that I align myself with, with scholars and researchers. Um, and I think that that was the best advice I could have received because he basically said, ask people if you can work on their projects, you know, not for money, not for course credit, like simply to learn. Um, and I started doing that and he was so right. Um, I would approach faculty and say, Hey, I hear you're working on this research project and I don't know if there's anything that you could use help with, but I have two days a week that I could totally come in and work for, you know, four or five hours. And no one has ever said no to that. <laughs> I wouldn't. No one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he gave me hard feedback. He gave me great advice. Um, he was always there to listen, but he was also there to say like, stop perseverating on, on dumb things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really not the goal. So figure out what the goal is and, and work towards it. Um, but it was always intended to make me better. So I, I continue to listen to him and I, and now we're friends and, and colleagues and I go to him about work, but I also go to him about life in general. You know, we, we share books, we tell each other about podcasts and, um, you know, he still criticizes some of my work, but he also asks me to check his now. And that's, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, ultimate flattery. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and I guess generally the most of my faculty were at the very least advisors to me because I kind of did the things you said, like I made myself present and I asked questions and, um, you know, Peggy Swarbrick and, and Pat Nemec, I think have emerged as, as strong advisors over the past decade for me. And that's because we, we share a passion for wellness and, you know, they're visionary in their approaches to, to training and education and they value what I can contribute because I'm a, I'm a worker bee mm-hmm. and I, I, um, I'm great at deadlines and I can promote, you know, Peggy's vision and, and Pat's attention to detail. 
And I think that that really strengthens um, my my mentor-protege relationships because I pull from what they do um, and try to model some of the things that they've given me, even if they're small nuggets because they're not my formal mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, they are still people who hold a mentorship position in my in my view. Yeah. Um, Great. So let's let's highlight some of the the things that students could do to seek out mentorship opportunities if they're yeah. interested. Because we talked about a few, right? We talked about identifying. Well, first you have to figure out who would be a good mentor, right? And, and yeah. that is kind of up on you, depending on your interests and and who you have access to. Um, so figuring out who 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 might be good mentors and figuring out what would be something valuable that you could bring them, right? And I'm not just mm-hmm. saying like buy them a present. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying like, I, and I see it because I've, I've listened to like productivity podcasts and entrepreneur stuff. It's like you want to um, get noticed by an influencer in your in your field is to like, yeah. you know, figure out what they need and then be like, hey, you know, I compiled this spreadsheet. You know, I, I noticed that you were interested in this by this tweet you sent uh, a few weeks ago. And that's something that if they read it, they'll be like, oh, wow, this is cool. You know, so like I, I didn't need to kind of stoop to those, not stoop to those levels, but <laughs> I didn't need to to go that far because you were accessible and yeah. uh, your needs were a little more, you know, grounded in, in the day to day. But um, are there other things that have either come up in our talk that you think might be worth yeah. just going back to or other things you've thought about for ways that students could seek out mentorship opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny though, because it, it does seem like when you frame it that way, it's like this dubious thing you're doing, you know, yeah. find, finding out what people are interested in. It's yeah, like, well, stalking that's, the, them. <laughs> that's, that, you know, but that's the basis of any relationship, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be friendship or, um, romantic relationships or, you know, a job, a potential job that you're, you're seeking, you know, it, that's the fundamental root of relationships is finding places of interest and either aligning yourself with that person because you share the interest or just acknowledging that that's their interest and that you'd be willing um, to help advance whatever it is they're doing. So I, I like it. I don't, I don't think it's dubious. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good approach. Some of the other things, though, I, I, are very basic. Ask to volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, faculty need help all the time. Um, whether it be helping somebody, you know, with an online course, um, or working with them on developing, uh, lectures, or if they have a research agenda, um, doing something as basic as a lit review, um, or an annotated bibliography around a a topic of interest that, you know, the faculty is researching. Mm -hmm. All of those are really valuable, um, contributions to the faculty members, larger, larger agenda. Um, you know, showing up to department events, it it goes a long way. Um, but showing up to department events like colloquia and presentations, but knowing also who are the players in the room Mm -hmm. is big. big. You know, if I see Peggy Swarbrick or, uh, in, in a conference and I say, Peggy, I'm, I'm so interested in your work around wellness. That is tremendous. You know, you should know that. Mm-hmm. Um, or I see Melissa Roberts and I say, you know, I know that some of the work of the employment Institute has been, you know, really, uh, prominent. And it's, I saw it in a, in a recent journal. Um, the article was amazing that stops people in their tracks and makes, makes them realize, Oh, I'm going to remember that guy next mm-hmm. time he reaches out. Um, it's never a bad idea to introduce yourself and, and make it clear that you know what that faculty person um, is researching, and then it's easier to make the pitch of, um, and if there's anything I can do to help on the project, I, I would love to. So it's like keeping yourself in the mix, and I don't have any better ways to say that, but getting some face time with faculty, um, knowing what your faculty are researching, and you could find that very easily you know, on the department website. Um, if you find something of interest, shoot them an email and say, Hey, I just picked up the journal of psych rehab and noticed this article made me think about the work you were doing last year. Those things are, are really powerful networking strategies. And do they take some, um, some forethought? Absolutely. Um, but it's not like you need to hide that. 
you're, you could say to the faculty, I'd really, I'd really like to get involved with your research group. That's, that's very flattering. So, you know, using these, these networking skills, I think advances you as a student, but also really sets the stage for developing those savvy habits as a worker, because it becomes, you know, critically important, you know, important, um, that you maintain a professional network once you get it, you know, out into the workforce. Yeah. I think those are some good concrete uh, suggestions we've been able to come up for people. Um, yeah. And if people have any out there, you know, please send them in to me. Send mm-hmm. me an email. Um, if you have had success with kind of getting partnered up with uh, mentors, then uh, have some tips that we have not mentioned. I know there's like online resources and stuff that I've never even like really tried to delve into yeah. to, to match protégés and mentors. Um, so if anyone's had the success, you know, reach out. All right, let's uh, let's transition. This has been a, a great discussion about mentorship. I want to kind of end a little bit on goals because that's what yeah. we do here. Goal <laughs> achievement. Uh, the podcast is all about setting goals that that matter to people, and and then really I try and help people put the right structure in place to achieve those goals, whether it be you know coping strategies or productivity stuff, or sometimes mm-hmm. it's knowing what figuring out what the next step is or, or how to overcome a barrier. What is your personal goal setting process like? Um, I've talked about how we set goals in the department, you know, make yeah. defined and smart goals. How much of that is actually stuff you do uh, is in addition to what you teach, or do you have your own system? Okay, so I teach and train on smart goals a lot, um, and I use smart goals in my personal life a lot. But I don't, I don't need to use the the acronym anymore, or um, you know, follow the letters to the T because. I've just adopted this process as a human, um, not as a teacher and a trainer or a mental health clinician, um, but just as a person who has, you know, lots of, uh, goals that change over periods of time and I need to keep track of them. Um, and I believe in, in the method tremendously. So I've used goal setting, um, many times in my life and I find that the structure has, has served me really well. Most recently I've been using, goal setting to support my scholarship efforts. And so part one of that was joining a writing club um, that started to get together this summer with three other faculty members. Um, And we, up until recently, before the fall semester started, we were meeting once a week to discuss our plans and actions related to publishing. So we would be writing small, manageable goals that, you know, still required a stretch, but were attainable. Um, and talking with each other on a weekly basis, you know, essentially holding each other accountable for ourselves, um, and the progress that we were making towards our goal acquisition, we would, um, upload documents to a shared site that had like, um, from October 7th to October 14th, I will. So real, uh, short term, um, objective goal writing and goal setting. Um, and, and what I find is that just by writing out the goal, and, and you've probably addressed this in, in other podcasts, and then creating the weekly action plan to achieve the goal, things always seem to fall better into place. Yeah. And and something I learned and that you have done a lot of work around um, is the added benefit of calendaring so that I could block out writing time every week. And I've been trying, not always with 100% success, to not let anything encroach on the designated writing time that I have put in my calendar. Um, I've been really protective uh, of that. And I'm also, you know, constantly around goal setting. Um, the wellness coaching curriculum um, that I've been involved with, with with Peggy and Pat over the past five years um, is strongly centered on the value of goal setting for health change. Um, so I find that the more training I'm doing in wellness coaching, the healthier <laughs> I am. Yeah. And, you know, the more deliberate I am about my own health choices every day because I feel like I can't, you know, talk the talk without walking the walk. So yeah. I, I have health goals several times a year uh, that I'm working on. And so there's something very motivating about hearing other people's goals and action plans. It's, it's contagious. And I always find that change begets change. So doing one or two small things really successfully, um, increases motivation to do more small things. And the cumulative effect of that is is positive change. So 
I, I'm always working on something, um, using a, a real, you know, method. And so th- I want to be able to communicate that to the students and to the people I train and, and just to the people in my life who I care about and care about me that, you know, there's a way of doing this and the way of doing it makes a lot of sense and, and it gets you, uh, closer to your goal and, and you're just more successful. So I, I buy into it a lot. Yeah. I do too, and that's probably another thing that's that's connected us in that yeah. we're both very attuned to you know making things de- well defined, like yeah. figuring out exactly what we want and 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 adhering to deadlines, and, or you know, and if not, like communicating when it's not going to be you know manageable. Yeah. So you, you do need that in a, in a person, not necessarily always in your mentor. You know, um, mm-hmm. thinking about other mentors and people we've talked about on today, you know, others aren't as, as you know, goal focused or, or focused on the documentation aspect of, you know, writing it down, but um, that you connect with them in other ways and you may get that from other people in your life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, you do really, you know, walk the walk. And, and I think that that has probably served you well as an instructor in this department. Thank you. Um, Speaking of that, that'll be my last question. Um, you've probably had countless students over the years, um, both, you know, well, you know, working with people, mm-hmm. adults previous to uh, joining the faculty here, and now with, with students, um, our department sees a higher than normal uh, amount of people that uh, are students that um, self-disclose that they have mental health issues. So sometimes we know because they tell us, and sometimes you just know because you've worked with a lot of people and, and you know, mental illness, mm-hmm. um, what is some advice you'd give to them that are struggling with goal achievement right now, you know, that might be listening in today? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, beyond some of the standards, like, you know, uh, talk to your instructor, make sure you have accommodations in place for when you need them or, you know, reach out early and, and discuss, what some of your academic needs are, you know, those, those things are all, are really important, but I tend to think about success more globally and try to consider all of the dimensions that make that student who they are. Um, I think as a college student, your protective factors are really critical. And what I mean by protective factors is that your support networks, your physical health and your mental health are are all interconnected and really vital. So I would advise college students to pay more attention to their own habits and routines. Um, if you know that meeting deadlines is, is sometimes a challenge for you, then start every semester calendaring the important dates that things are due. If you know that memory and concentration are difficult, set reminders on your phone. Um, you know, small things, study every single day in, in chunks. Don't wait until you have four chapters and feel overwhelmed and stuck, you know? Um, and then, and, and, and going back to this like broader human kind of, uh, important factors, I think keeping your social life intact, you know, even though time is really limited when you're a student, set yourself the goal of carving out 15 minutes every single day, um, to reach out to someone who loves you and supports you, whether that be by text or by phone or on social media. Um, and maybe for, for me and for a lot of people who I've, uh, I've encountered, one of the most important things I think is, is sleep and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, the value of sleep and rest is so underestimated in college life. And I really think that no good work can be done when your mind and your body are fatigued. And also, you know, tons of research that supports People who are tired or um, are mentally overwhelmed um, have a diminished ability for problem solving and decision making. So it's like this snowball, right? Like you're, you're, you're sleep fatigued. Um, it makes you hungry. You have poor decision making. So you choose bad things to put in your body. Uh, you drink too much because um, socially you need to unwind. It's just, it's this real snowball effect that I think we need to spend more time talking with our students about um, protecting their physical health um, in order to be successful in, in, in all of these these life domains. So those are just my thoughts on on what I would tell a student. Now, obviously, I couldn't say that in one sitting, 
<laughs> no, probably not. But it brings up it brings up a good point, and and I I don't know if I've stressed it enough over you know over time with the podcast is is really considering all globally all of the we talk we talk about dimensions of wellness, and you could look them up. I'll include uh, a PDF of the eight dimensions of wellness in the show notes for oh, today. Cool. Uh, but but look at that. There are eight different you know areas that all you know are intertwined and impact your life and impact your your mental health. There is one devoted to emotional health, but yeah. you know your the lack of uh, something that is needy a needy area and say spirituality might be yeah. impacting that. And um, it just kind of comes back comes down to this. I, I just I'm going to say it bluntly. Like figure out who the fuck you are. Yeah. You know, what you like, what you need, what you don't like, and, you know, knowing yourself and not just focusing on the mental health part, you know, looking at your, your whole self and tinkering, right? You know, if you notice this little piece is like off, like try a little something, you know, because little changes, like you said, are, are much easier to do. There are some days I don't feel like, you know, grading, right? And I'm, sure mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you felt that way. Yeah. And it's like, I, I tell myself like, just call up the five goddamn papers that you need to grade. <laughs> Put them on your computer and have them open. And it's like, all right, I did that. And it's like, just copy and paste the rubrics, you know, mm-hmm. even if they're blank, so that the next time I do it, it's like they're all set up, they're ready to grade. You know, it's just like, and that took like five minutes or whatever, but I got something done, right? It's like yeah. momentum was pushed a little further, right? You know, uh, we didn't stop. Uh, so know yourself. Um, yeah. Look at those different dimensions that you may not even be be thinking about right now as like potential causes or, or impacting your problems at all. Yeah, um, yeah. But really take a good look into them and, and figure out like what you what you need in life and, and what might be missing and tinker. I would say trial and error. That's right. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming yeah. on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I think uh, we've given hopefully given people a lot to think about when it comes to mentorship and, and goal setting. And, uh, you know, thank you again for, for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a great time. Okay, welcome back. So to quickly wrap things up, thank you so much to Amy for coming on the uh, episode and uh, giving me that interview. Really hope you guys got some value out of it. Uh, your home exercise for this week is sort of a longer term exercise, and it relates obviously to mentorship. I'd like you to brainstorm one or two people that you can target as mentors that are going to help you reach either the goal you're working on now or maybe some other goal that you're thinking about down the road that you might have on your radar. You know, if you're working on, say, I don't know, a weight loss goal right now, but you're, you know, in a um, psychology program and you may have another year or two before you finish and you've identified somebody in the department, like you, you maybe you've taken a class with a professor that you really like that stood out from all the other professors and you might be like, you know what, they might be a good mentor for me. Start brainstorming like now, you know, because that goal might be for beyond when you graduate and, you know, they might have a role in helping you kind of either land a job or an internship or um, find your way within graduate school. So this might be, uh, this exercise is sort of meant to be a more long-term or that it might not relate to what's going on today for this goal, but it hopefully will pay off down the road. Start laying that groundwork now. Um, as the uh, Chinese proverb, I believe, goes, uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And that makes sense, right? Um, a tree takes a long time to mature. And just like mentoring relationships, uh, they could take years, as, as we've kind of just um, kind of talked about. Um, the next best time to plant a tree, if it wasn't 20 years ago, is today. So get started. Start sowing those seeds of mentorship. And um, really, uh, best of luck to you in your search. You know, mentorship is an incredibly rewarding relationship, both for the protege as well as, as I'm learning now, for, for the mentor themselves. So get at it that this week, guys. Achieve those goals. I will be with you back here next week. Peace.